Turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We have the Lord's Supper before us, and we want to turn our attention toward it. We are glad to be in the house of the Lord. How amiable are His tabernacles. And they're most amiable when we come to the Lord's Supper and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'm going to read to you the last five verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who, when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Amen Amen and amen. amen. We believe in context. So when we look at these five verses, we look to see what comes before them, and we find in verses 12 down through 20 that we have two of our relationships in life described. Verses 13 through 17 describe our relationship to the civil government. And it says in verse 13, to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Things like our shoulder restraints in our vehicles, as an example. And the Apostle Peter deals with our submission to civil government. He mentions the king as the supreme ruler in verse 13. He mentions governors in verse 14 as those that are sent by him. He says it's the will of God in verse 15. that This is how we shut the mouths of our enemies, by obeying our own masters, our civil masters. And he tells the brethren to use their liberty in the gospel, not maliciously against their government, but to submit themselves to their rulers. In verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There is our position as Christians on how we should treat civil government. Then, verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. This is how you should work on the job. And if you work this way on the job, you'll have a reward in heaven when you get there. God will bless you on earth while you're here. And in most cases, you'll be rewarded while you're here on earth. Because masters like these kind of employees. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. 
many words, the lesson is this simple. God has ordained employers to hire employees. And Christians, when they're employees, are to obey their employers with all fear. They are to submit themselves to those masters and obey them. And they're to do it not only to the good and gentle bosses. You know, when, when you will work for a good and gentle boss, that isn't submission. That's pay for a vacation. Because you've got a good and a gentle boss. It's easy to work for such a man or woman. But what if you work for an obnoxious one? What if you work for a difficult boss? Doesn't keep his promises? Throws overtime at you without any notice? Promotes someone past you? Doesn't pay you on time? Whatever the case might be, a forward master, you are to take it patiently and suffer through it because this is acceptable to God. Because that is the real test of how much you fear God. To submit to a good boss doesn't prove anything about your faith. Anybody can do that. But to submit to a difficult boss and to do it cheerfully proves you must have a conscience toward something higher. And that conscience is toward the Lord. That was what came before our five verses. What comes after? Husbands and wives. Wives are mentioned in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, on how they're to relate to their husbands. And in verse 7, husbands are told how they are supposed to treat their wives. And we have these five verses stuck in the middle of them. And when we begin reading them, and that's what we're going to do right now for a few minutes, we want the sense of these verses as we come to the Lord's table. Verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. The word hereunto in the first part of verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. That hereunto is what's just been described in verses 18 through 20. And let me repeat what that was. That is submitting and enduring suffering and pain and mistreatment from a boss. Because you have a conscience toward God, and you trust God to take care of you. And because He told you to submit to your boss, you submit to a boss in this world, no matter how He treats you. You do have the ultimate resort of quitting. But you do not have the resort of reviling Him by calling Him names. Nor do you have the right to threaten Him by doing damage to His business or damage to Him. You know, we had that perverse organization called the UAW threaten General Motors in the last couple of weeks to strike. They are the most ignorant of all men that have ever walked the planet that form unions. They are so ignorant of their own company that they don't realize that our auto industry is so inefficient and inept because of the union that it can no longer produce quality cars to sell at a reasonable price, and they're all going to lose their jobs. So they go on strike to get more pay, better benefits, in order to help their company come to an earlier demise. Now that's wisdom, isn't it? Oh, I wish we had Ronald Reagan back in office, who would tell them all to take a hike and replace them all. There'd be plenty of people that would like to work for General Motors for half the wages and half the benefits of what the UAW gets paid. I know I'm getting a little bit off track, 
and I hardly ever mention a president from the pulpit, but I did like President Reagan when the air traffic controllers threatened our country by saying if they weren't paid better, they were going to go on strike and put all of our flights in jeopardy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's a great president. That's a great president. Thank you, Lord, for Ronald Reagan and that little testimony of authority that he showed us back 20 years ago. Brethren, for even hereunto, this duty of verses 18 through 20 is hard to do. When you've got a difficult boss to work for him cheerfully and to do all that he wants you to do and, when you, and to suffer. I mean, we're, we're talking about an ugly work situation where you're suffering and you are enduring grief. And you are enduring grief wrongfully because you are right. Do you know what the Lord tells you to do anyway? Submit and obey that master. And do it as unto the Lord. The Lord will take care of you. It's a wonderful passage. Jesus has called us to do this. And not only has he charged us to do it in verses 18 through 20, he's given us an example because he did it already in front of us. He is an example of doing that. For even hereunto were ye called. A real Christian is not just a person that sits in here and says, oh, how I love Jesus. A real Christian is out there that can be persecuted, troubled, afflicted, denied, suffering on the job, and will do it cheerfully because the Lord's their Savior. It doesn't matter. They're still happy. Yes, sir, I'll do it. Because the Lord has called them to it, and He is their, he is their ultimate master. But we've been called to it. That means we've been told to do it that way. That is how you're supposed to work. And if you're working for a Christian boss, you're to work that way even more so. Because he is an heir with you of eternal life. Is that found in the Bible? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. That if you're working for a believing master, you owe it to him even more. But even an unbeliever gets this kind of treatment from us. And what kind of a testimony could we give to the Lord Jesus Christ... If we take grief and endure it wrongfully, even when we're right and they're wrong, we endure it and we take it cheerfully because we have a conscience toward God. Jesus calls us to it because that's how Christians are supposed to live. And then Jesus showed us how to do it. Because the rest of the verse says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The Lord Jesus Christ is such a gracious master. He is not a tyrant that tells us, you have to work that way. He went and did it first for us to show us it can be done. And I don't care how much you might think that you're enduring grief wrongfully on the job. There's always something wrong with you. And there was nothing wrong with him. Nothing wrong with him because that's why we have the next verse. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. We know that we've never been perfect in the job. We know that we've never spoken perfectly like he did. But he suffered for us even though he was so perfect. Christians should suffer cheerfully because the Lord's called us to it and because he did it in front of us and gave us an example of doing it. We always have guilt. We can't say that they're wrong and I'm right because in some measure, to some degree, maybe in some other area, We've been wrong ourselves, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. While the Lord Jesus Christ and Peter are giving us an example of how we should suffer because Jesus suffered himself, 
we're also getting a reminder of the cross of Calvary. And as Peter gets more and more into it, he's going to leave the job and be just thinking about what the Lord Jesus Christ did, to, did for us in verses 24 and 25. But this is common in the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit is leading a man, he's writing about civil authority, he's writing about working on the job, he starts to use Jesus Christ as an example of his suffering, and he just gets, he just gets off onto the greatest subject of all, what Jesus did for us when he came into this world and died on the cross of Calvary. And then he says, you were like sheep. We, we, in this world, we were the enemies of God, running from him, choosing our own way, and willingly following the course of the devil. But now we've returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Amen. And then he goes back on in verse 1 of chapter 3. But we have this little excursion, this little sideline of where he's showing us the example of Jesus Christ. And he brings us to the cross. Verse 22, who did no sin. The nation of Israel lined up the best false accusers they could get their hands on. Accuser after accuser came in to accuse the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, stood on trial for his life. Before Pilate, the Roman procurator, before Herod, the king of that part of Judea, before the high priest, they brought false accusation after false accusation and could find no sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. None at all. No guile in his mouth. He had never deceived. He had never been dishonest. He had never exaggerated. He had never extorted. He was perfectly righteous in life and word. They tried their best. And Pilate, with his own perverse sense of judgment, sat there and knew that Jesus Christ was innocent. He knew that out of envy, the Jews were trying to railroad him. I want you to love the Son of God that we're about to remember and celebrate his death. Because when he stood on trial for his life, and every effort had been made to comb the public records of what he had said and done to find something wrong, there was nothing. If the records were combed for you and me, there are closets full of skeletons. There are sins innumerable that can be raised against us. We do not deserve comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we suffer wrongfully on the job, it is nothing compared to Him suffering. Because we are so guilty, the Lord could trouble us every day for the rest of our lives, and He still wouldn't have meted out enough punishment for our sins. But He did no sin. Neither was guile found in His mouth. Is that suffering wrongfully? When the Lord Jesus Christ had to suffer? They scourged him with a Roman cat of nine tails. That's a cat with nine tails. That's a wooden handle big enough to get both of your hands on it with nine leather thongs coming out of it with bits of metal tied into those leather thongs that would rip your back wide open. The Lord Jesus Christ was scourged. He was reviled. They blindfolded him and punched him in the face, Roman soldiers, and said, if you're the Son of God, prophesy and tell us who hit you. Could he have said something? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And we come to verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. 
They accused him of all sorts of filthy and dirty things. They reviled him. Any words that they could think up, any description that they could think up to put him down, they put him down. It didn't matter whether it was the Jews themselves, the Roman soldiers in Pilate's judgment hall, or the thieves on the cross. Our brother, our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stood on trial and hung on that cross and was reviled. To revile someone is to rail on them with insulting names, to degrade and abase them. The Bible tells us they reviled them. They wagged their heads. They made fun of them. They dared them. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. Could he have come down? Could he have instantly replaced himself with them on the cross? Could he have strung up the whole city in one second of time? Could he have called 12 legions of angels to destroy the world and set him free? Could he have reviled them a little bit? Did he know a few sins of their mama? Did he know a few sins of their grandmama? Did he know their secret sins that no one else knew? Could he have reviled them? When you're called something on the job, where are the real Christians? Let them stand up. Do you know what a real Christian does in the job when he's called a name? He does not call a name back. That's the practical lesson. Who, when he was reviled, this is the example he gave us. When he was reviled, reviled not again. Did the Lord Jesus Christ know how to name names and call people things? Has Matthew 23 got a pretty creative description of what he thought of the Pharisees? Could he have done that on the cross? Could he have done that in Pilate's judgment hall? Could he have called Pilate the timid little yellow weasel that he was? Did he do anything like that? Not at all. Pilate was astounded. Pilate was amazed. He had never seen anyone accused and charged with so many things that didn't say a word. Have you read that? Do you all know this? That is our brother. Our brother died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was set up before the world began to come into this world and lay down his life for us. And he did it in a glorious way. You know, it's one thing to let everybody that's killing you know what you think of them before you go. He could have. You think he should have. But he didn't. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. That's overwhelming to me. His mouth is called a sharp two-edged sword because he could have thought of any. He could have crushed them at their own game. But he didn't. He gave us an example. But he did more than that. He saved our souls. He saved our souls. Because if he'd have given in to the lust of the flesh... We wouldn't have had a perfect Savior on the cross. But he did not give in to the lust of the flesh. Do you know what it is that causes you to want to call someone a name back? It's the pride of life. There's only three kinds of sins in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Your little feelings got hurt by someone calling you a name. You should remember the little saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Sticks and stones and swords and scourges and a cross hurt the Lord Jesus Christ, but the names didn't. He overlooked them all because he was going to the cross for you and me. What an example for us, but what a Savior we have. When he was reviled, reviled not again. Those thieves on the cross, he could have listed, he could have listed their police record. He knew their blotter better than the men who put them there. When he suffered, he threatened not. Did the Lord Jesus Christ know what he was going to do to his enemies in the last day? 
could he have done some pretty serious threatening? When he heard the words out of Pilate's mouth, Knowest thou not that I can crucify thee or free thee? Could he have made a remark? Could he have defended himself? Could he have threatened Pilate? Did he know that Pilate's wife had already come to him and told him, Have nothing more to do with this man? The Lord Jesus Christ knew all of that. And when he suffered, he threatened not. When you're on the job, if you want to be a Christian, when you suffer, you do not threaten. You do not threaten. Let's be like our Savior. There's two things running parallel right here. There are lessons for us on how we're to work on the job. But there is a description of the most glorious brother that we have who came into this world and laid out his life willingly. And he withheld every emotion that we let go so many times. He did not revile when he was reviled. He did not threaten when he suffered. He could have. He didn't. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Well, how did he do it? The Jews were reviling him. The Romans were reviling him. The thieves were reviling him. How could he just let them revile him without saying something back? If I don't say something back, they'll walk all over me. I hear people say, he was suffering wrongfully. He hadn't sinned. They hadn't proved a crime against him. Pilate said three times, the man is innocent. Shouldn't he have threatened them with what was going to happen? He knew what was going to happen in each of their lives individually, to the Jewish nation, to the world at the last day. How did he do that? The way you're supposed to do it. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He knew there was a righteous judge in heaven that would deliver him. A righteous judge that does not see any fatherless child taken advantage of in the womb by the abortionists in our nation. A judge in heaven that will defend every widow. A judge that has already vindicated and exalted the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth to the right hand of power. The Lord Jesus Christ has already been delivered out of this world, delivered from the seal of the Roman governor who sealed the tomb that he would not be released. That seal was broken by an earthquake, and the angels of the Lord delivered the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ascended into heaven. He sits there forevermore, our Savior. He has been vindicated by the judge to whom he committed his soul. Are you able to do that on the job? Are you wives able to do that with your husbands? Are you able to do that with the civil government? No matter how much we read of their evil designs and their foolish programs and legislation, can you submit yourself to the judge that rules over all? There is a Supreme Court that is higher than the Supreme Court of our nation, and our Supreme Court will give an account to that Supreme Court. And that Supreme Court is run by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a judge over all. So verses 13 through 17, can you submit to the civil government by understanding there is a judge that they will answer to and he will defend us? Can you submit to your master on the job, even when you're suffering wrongfully, even when you're enduring grief wrongfully, because you know there is a master in heaven that will protect you? You women, you wives, you read the word of God that tells you to submit to your husbands, to obey them, to reverence them. The thought is, if I do that, he'll run over me. 
Oh no, you're forgetting that you have a husband in heaven who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will protect you. So keep his word because you've been called to be a submissive wife. Or you're not a real Christian. A real Christian woman submits to her husband because that's what the word of God teaches. And she knows she has a husband in heaven that will deliver her. Husbands, since you're mentioned in chapter 3, verse 7, you should remember that you have a judge in heaven as well. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know, how many men threaten the, threaten the boss? Threaten the boss. You know, I'm going to tell others that this is going on in here. I'm going to spread this. I'm going to go to someone else. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. In order to try to get leverage with the boss, the Lord Jesus Christ did not threaten at all. What an example. I want to mention to you right now about our Savior. That he had the greatest faith of any man that has ever lived. And we are justified by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what that faith was? Standing there with everyone against him, being on trial for his life. He committed himself to the one that he knew judged righteously. He committed himself into the, hand, himself into the hands of God. He knew that God would deliver him, even though God had forsaken him in a way of fellowship because of our sins. Do you know what kind of faith that takes? What were his final words? As he, as, he, as he gave up his life, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He gave his spirit to God. He laid down his life. They did not take it from him. He gave his life to God in total faith that God would vindicate him, take him, receive him, accept him, and exalt him on his throne. Though just minutes earlier he had said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that forsaking was so severe it shut the glories of the sun in for three hours so that the earth was bathed in darkness. But in the darkness of dying, he had faith in God his Father, the righteous judge of all. And that's how we're to live, brethren. There's a practical lesson and there's a, there's a doctrinal lesson here of the legal sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. They're both running side by side. Are you going to live like a Christian tomorrow? For the Christ who died for us and we remember today. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What a wonderful testimony of our Savior. Verse 24, Peter now just wants to say a little bit more. What was he suffering for? If he was suffering wrongfully, what was he suffering for? Who his own self... His singular male pronoun, own, self, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who his own self bear our, your sins, my sins, in his singular male pronoun, own body, singular body, on the tree. We have one Savior. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he took your sins, and he took my sins. He took all the sins of all those that God had given him to redeem, and he saved every single one of them by bearing their sins in his own body on the tree. And he had done no sin, neither was there any guile found in his mouth. And yet he was suffering on a tree. He wasn't hung on a tree. Hanging is easy. The weight of your body, given only a few feet of travel, 
creates enough force that if the rope is tied properly, snaps your neck in an instant of time. There is no pain or suffering with hanging. Jesus wasn't on that kind of a tree. Jesus was on a Roman tree. A cross. That's why it's called a cross. Here it's called a tree because crosses are made out of trees. Nails were driven through his hands to suspend him a little bit. Not giving him enough help because from the extremities there isn't enough strength to support yourself. So he was constantly, very difficult to get enough air into your lungs because your diaphragm is being compressed. You're hanging naked before the world. Your back is wide open from scourging. Crowns have been driven into your skull. Blood is running down your body. He hung on a Roman cross, a Roman tree, and died for us the death of crucifixion. Right. He didn't face any guillotine. You know, a guillotine, you wouldn't feel a thing. It would sever your neck and spinal column in an instant of time. A firing squad, you wouldn't feel a thing. You'd never hear a thing. You'd be gone before the sound reached you. They'd have you half buried before the sound reached you. Lethal injection. Those of you that read the news a little bit, you know that there was some complaining. Lethal injection just ain't nice enough for murderers in our country this past week. We have a Savior that didn't die by lethal injection, firing squad, guillotine, or hanging from a tree. He was on a Roman cross. And we're to understand that right here. And he had done no sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth. And they knew it on trial. The man in charge of that trial knew that there was nothing wrong. So he washed his hands and said, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. This innocent man. He knew that. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body. Notice all the personal dealings. Your sins on his own body. He himself, by himself, purged your sins. This is the doctrine of substitution. Jesus Christ. Do you know what so many liberal theologians do today with the passage like this and the rest of the Bible? Jesus died a martyr's death to give us an example of how to live. This is no martyr's death. And this is no death of an example. There is an example here, but it's secondary to what Jesus did. Right. He died and was by that a, an example to us. But the purpose for his death was not just to be an example. The purpose of his death was to redeem us to God from our sins. Amen. This is the doctrine of substitution. We don't believe that Jesus just died to do something nice to show us how to be nice. Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God by suffering that wrath himself for our sins. It pleased the Lord to bruise him instead of bruising you. And what a bruising it was. It wasn't just the cross of Calvary. It was God forsaking him. It was all of his friends forsaking him. It was loneliness under the wrath of God and the punishment of our sins. And it was knowing what was coming. You know, it's one thing to die unexpectedly and not be thinking about it, but the Lord Jesus Christ knew what was coming his entire life. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's where that suffering came from, and it was to redeem us to God. And how successful it was. Jesus, before he died, said, 
I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the one he trusted in. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus did not lose any for whom he died. He saved everyone with an absolute, total, complete, and final salvation by paying for all their sins. We lay hold of that eternal salvation and know that we're one of God's elect by believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then living like it. And if you're not living like it, your believing don't mean anything. The devils believe and tremble. But we need to be living like a Christian. And we've just had told to us here, if we really want to look like a Christian, then we will suffer grief wrongfully out of conscience toward God. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That, here's a consequence of it that we, being dead to sins. If Jesus died for our sins, then we should act like we're dead to sins in two ways. We should not be trying to find ways to pay for them ourselves like the Jews did, and we shouldn't be sinning. If Jesus died to save us from our sins, then let's stop sinning. That we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness. He saved us for a purpose, to live a righteous life. And part of that righteousness is right here in context. Obeying civil authority, obeying the master and the job, obeying your husband and loving your wife. Right here, right in context. But what purchased that for us? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ultimate work of suffering for us. By whose stripes ye were healed. That cat of nine tails that I mentioned that ripped open the back of Jesus of Nazareth healed us because it paid for our sins. It blotted out all our transgressions legally in the sight of God. So in the sight of God, we have no sin. At the moment Jesus Christ said it is finished, the price had been paid that God would accept and had already accepted in his eternal counsel that our sins were paid for and we were free, free forever in the sight of God because of the death of Jesus Christ for us. We have you have a brother. Jesus Christ is God, but Jesus Christ is not just God. Jesus Christ is a man. There is a man in heaven at this hour about your height. He is not 12 feet tall. He is an average man's height, but he is our Savior. He is our brother. He is the Son of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is the fullness of God in a human body. He laid down his life for us. He was born of a woman the same way you are, except his mother was a virgin. He was born with the power of the Holy Spirit. He came into this world and was laid in a manger and was swaddled with clothes the same way we swaddle our babies. He grew to manhood in the same rate and pace that we do. And he died in the prime of his life. And he sits forever. The son of David, the son of God, the high king of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of this church, the cornerstone of this church, and everything in between, like apostle, high priest, prophet, bishop, and shepherd. Amen. He is our Savior. Right. Amen. And he died this way for us. And his stripes healed us. His back was ripped open with the stripes. If he received 40 blows, then there were 360 lashes across his back. And he did that for you and me. And he did that because of our sins. And he put those sins away. These words here, by whose stripes ye were healed, have nothing to do with a Benny Hinn healing service. 
They have everything to do with us being healed in the sight of God of all the offensive, terrible filthiness of our sins. Healed from that in the sight of God. For ye were as sheep, for ye were as sheep going astray. Because Jesus died for us, that we, sh- that we should be dead to sins and live for righteousness. We are now coming back to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Is that outside this room? For ye were as sheep going astray. We had enough time in the past in our lives, as First Peter chapter 4 tells us, to have lived for ourselves. It shouldn't suffice us. We have already had enough time in sin living for ourselves. It should be enough that we now should be able to live for righteousness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So like sheep, we are returning to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And these elect persons that Peter wrote, these are the elect of God. First Peter chapter 1, we're in chapter 2. If we go back to see to whom Peter was writing, it says in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Savior Jesus Christ obeyed for us. His blood is sprinkled upon us because of the election of the great God of heaven. And he did that in a way suffering when he had done no sin. There was no guile in his mouth. But upon him, he took all our sins and died for us, suffering wrongfully in the ultimate sense of those words. We should be able to do a little bit of that day to day in our own lives. But Jesus has died for us. He lost none. He will present every single one of them to God in heaven. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. All the children given to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has redeemed and he shall present to God our Father. And we get to return to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And what he has asked of us is that we come to his table and remember his death until he comes. He died on a Roman cross, suffering wrongfully, enduring grief, out of conscience toward God and keeping his commandments and his will. And his will was to save you and me by that death. Amazing love. How can it be?